How many of you have been able to go to the movies in the last few, in the last few weeks or in the last month or so? Anybody in here? We had nobody in first service. They're like, I don't go to the movies, you evil man. It's like, I don't, lately we just went and we saw the Adjustment Bureau and uh, went and sat down in that. Me and my wife were sitting there watching this one. And as I'm watching, I'm just kind of going like, I just can't buy that one. It was just, it wasn't fitting with me. It was kind of like what they were trying to present to me wasn't getting past my, this is silly filter. And, uh, and it was just kind of like, I don't trust you. This isn't reality. It doesn't work. And so I couldn't suspend my disbelief. I couldn't just push off. Unlike Inception, is that what it was? Inception? Yeah, that, which was an incredibly good, made, well-made movie. And I'm watching that movie, and they, you know how what they do? They put it in real life, right? So it's kind of like somewhere in the world, in your time period, this is going on. And, and so they, somehow they deliver it to you in such a way that you're like, this is cool. Oh, wow, oh, this is an amazing idea. What if we could be in dreams together? Is this a dream? Is, you know, they're just, they're playing with your mind, and you're asking questions in their world. Because if you really sat back, you'd say, come on. You can't visit each other's dreams you can't plug into the mind and make them come architects. <laughs> I mean, if you had your baloney filter up, if you were just sitting there looking at it as a logical, critical individual, you'd be like, this is the dumbest movie I've ever seen in my life. But you don't do that when you go to the movies. You suspend your disbelief. You hold it off. You say, I am totally cool with this seeming like my world, but it's not. Because that's what makes it fun. I, I remember the first time I just got knocked over by that thought. I was watching, not the old Star Wars, but the, the new ones when they came out. I was watching the first new one when it came out. I was part of that title group that went, gotta see it, you know, and ran to the movies. And I'm watching this scene in the, nearing the end of the movie of the, of the Phantom Menace. And I'm watching this and I'm going, this is the worst acting I've ever seen. And they're going, me studies and all this stuff. And I'm going, oh, you're driving me crazy. I can't stand this. And then I realized, oh, wait, they're not actors. This is all computer-generated graphics. No human beings on the screen at this point. It's all on a computer. And I went, whoa, that's good. <laughs> when, I, when I'm trying to criticize the acting, and I'm criticizing the acting of, of a computer animated object, I've suspended my disbelief. <laughs> I have bought into this hook, line, and sinker. I'm in. The problem is... That some of us approach the Bible with the same modern mentality. And you may even say you're a Christian. Some of us dive into the Bible and we're like, wow, this is a good story. This is interesting. I like who Jesus is. I like his teachings. Oh, miracle. I'll ignore that. And then there's this. Oh, miracle. I'll ignore that one. And then and you're just going through it and you're like dis, just suspending your disbelief as you read it. Because you know it's a good book, right? Because everybody says so. You know Jesus is a great guy, but I've never seen a miracle. This must be like Inception or Star Wars or something like that. And we plug it into a genre that didn't exist in its time period. And we put it into a scenario that doesn't have anything to do with the way that we view suspended, you know, suspended disbelief. I think it's interesting because there are some people who approach the Bible and they go, I'm not going to buy into that suspended disbelief of all those people. I, I'm actually going to say what it is. It's just ridiculous. Miracles don't happen. That's just not the reality of the world. And they stand back and they look at the Bible and they say, forget suspending my disbelief. I'm not going to bite. And then there are millions of us. In fact, 
Hundreds in our church, thousands across Corona, millions, if not billion in the world that say, no, that's, that is reality. This is truth. This is what you set your compass by. That's how real and true it is. And this tension exists in this world as they start to meet each other. Hey, why don't, why don't you come to my church? And it's a great, it's, we believe the Bible. It's a Bible preaching. I don't believe the Bible. Why don't you believe the Bible? It's, it's full of mistakes. It's completely, it's completely critical. It's, it's all messed up, man. It compromises itself. It completely has all these horrible contradictions and things in it. And you're just like, whoa, why do you even believe it? I just do. I take it by faith, some of us say. And, and this battle comes into where suddenly it looks like all I do is trust the Bible. All, but there's no reason to trust the Bible. Is there reason to trust the Bible? Is there reason we should approach the Bible and look at it and examine it and say, this thing is reliable? I think there is good reason. I think we need to do this. And that's what we plan on doing during static these two, this next two weeks. Just for a little bit, just to take some, some examination. But the danger is that these two sides are created, honestly, from, from something completely different than what we normally do. These two sides are created because we want to have a Bible, and some of us want to believe it, and some of us don't. But the, the fierce battle occurs because of the nature of what we're reading. Let me give you an example of what I'm, what I'm trying to get into. What I'm holding here is called Rome, Power and Glory by Questar. It was probably shown on the History Channel um, at some point, or Discovery Channel, something like that. We bought it. I've watched it. My wife slept through it. It was pretty interesting. And... Uh, <laughs> I kind of like this stuff, especially with the really cheeseball acting. And this really droning narrator who keeps going. If it, didn't, if it wasn't for the visuals, I would have slept too. But the idea is that we watch these things. And the challenge that comes up is, is you ask these people, Hey, well, why do you, where do you get your source of history from? What do you, well, I believe in what the History Channel says. Oh, I agree with the Discovery Channel. You know, I'll tell you what. I met more people who base their historical knowledge off the History Channel and the Discovery Channel or A&E, than they, do, um, than they do an actual history course at school. I mean, you can go to your history course at school, but I doubt we remember a whole lot, you know? I could say the word Mesopotamia, and you're going, I haven't heard that since junior high. <laughs> you know, I could talk about Alaric, the barbarian, and some of you are going, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. And how he sacked Rome, and how he took over the area, and, and, it was only, and the only reason he didn't kill everybody off was because one bishop came out and stopped him. There's all this history in this world that we're going, wow, this is so interesting. How do you even know that? You're watching this. I'm watching this, and it gets to right here, the cult of order, and starts talking about the time period when Jesus existed. And they're talking about all the cults that existed and all the stuff that was going on. And I'm sitting there, this is fascinating. And I've taken courses on this stuff, and I'm going, that's not right. That's not right. That's not what I was taught. Archaeologically, that's, that's, that's right. But that's not... Where are you getting your sources from? And then, of course, they show these people who are historians at universities, and they talk, and they tell you all their information. And you go, okay, that's where they got that from. I must have been taught wrong. Or you go, that guy's got a different theory is really what you'll start discovering. And you start kind of breaking it down. You start going into the research and you discover that really the history of Rome is, is really given to us by only about like four or five historians hired by Caesars throughout the ages to write down what had happened in the ages past and what was happening currently. 
Um, different, different Roman, I could get into a bunch of the different guys that get into them in this, and it's kind of interesting, but what we find out is really they have these documents, whether it's the Gallic Wars or whether it's um, some other, like, Tacitus' information. There's all these different dudes who are writing the history of Rome. And what happens is in, they're talking about things that happened way in the past that they know about, and they're writing it in these clay tablets or in these uh, wax tablets, actually, and they're passing it down, and then it gets copied, and it's, it's copied and disseminated and copied again and disseminated. And eventually, all those copies vanish. I mean, we're talking about the Roman Empire. Only a few survive. Sometimes it's up in the 40s. Sometimes it's uh, even higher. Most of the time, it's about five or six copies survive. And they're about a 1,000 years removed from the guy who writes them. And we're sitting there looking at these things, and some historians take the information, they go, we got a good timeline, we understand what it is. They go to archaeology, they pick up more evidence about what possibly happened in these places, and then some TV guy shows up and says, let's make it cool, and it gets on History Channel, and we go, that's, that's, that's the truth, man. History Channel said so. History, in a box. <laughs> really cool. Or boring. And it's like, um, we get into this, based on a few dudes who wrote about information that didn't happen necessarily in their time period over a history of the past, sometimes a thousand years back, sometimes several hundred years past, and were removed from their original manuscript about a thousand years. And we go, wow, how can we even trust history is the question that comes up. But pretty much we do. Most historians say this is how it works. You, you have to trust, at least what they're giving you is the skeletal reality of what happened. And we're building in the details as we go, understanding things and, and so on and so forth. But when it comes to the Bible, we, we, we approach it in a completely different manner. We don't look at this as, as source documents. We don't look at them as eyewitnesses all the time. We don't examine the text and say, hey, well, that's what it says. That must tell me a lot about Jesus, who we know, if this is, if this is true, we know more about Jesus in his three years of ministry than we do about the Caesar of his time period because of the documents that we have. And we step back and we go, why is this so hard to reconcile? And before we even step into our arguments that this is reliable, we have to stop here and say the reason these two sides form is because the bottom line is when you read this, it's of a different nature than when you watch this. I don't really care if Romulus and Remus were real and suckled by wolves and, uh, and, and Romulus killed Remus. And this is the story of the rise of Rome, right? You're like, oh, really? Okay, well, you know, you can watch it. Um, I, it doesn't really affect my life if Julius Caesar did this or that. I go, cool information. But if this is right, if this is telling you what really happened in history, we have to change. You have to change behaviors. You have to change beliefs about the way that you view your culture, about the things you say are right and wrong, about even though the culture tells you we should be different. If this is telling the truth, we have to change. So it's sometimes easier to say it changed. It changed, so I don't have to change. If it didn't change, then there's a change that needs to be made. That's the seriousness of the project that we step onto. Is this text reliable? Is the Bible that you have in your hands under the seats around you at your home, is it something you can trust? Because if it is telling us the truth, it requires change, drastic change. And I want to argue that it hasn't really been changed that much in the way that we think of it. 
In fact, it is very reliable. And I want to start with the fact that simply this, we have so many texts out there, so, many manu- so much manuscript evidence that we actually have an accurate text. Our text is very accurate in this case. And so it's exciting to see this, and here's why. I want you to re- realize that what we have with these four authors, or these uh, various authors who write this Roman history and all this information that we have throughout all this stuff, is, um, is only a few documents, and they're copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies from a thousand years later. And we look at these texts, and we pull in the different texts, and we go, look, we're pretty sure this is what the guy wrote from the six that we have. We do the same thing with the Bible. We take all these manuscripts and we pull them together. How many manuscripts are we talking about? Well, we'll, t- we'll see. It's about 5,000 plus. But the story goes like this, that you and I hear. How many of you, tell me if you've heard this story. Oh, I can't believe in the Bible, man. The Catholics got together and they changed it all. They were like working on it and tweaking this and they tweaked that and, and they just kept building on it. And, and eventually, it, it's just not what was originally there anymore. I mean, I have ran into that so many times just talking to people. I'm like, Really? You invented a myth to say this is a myth? The Bible is so corrupted, it can't be understood anymore. Well, the manuscript evidence helps us avoid this story. The truth is, we have over 5,000, if not 6,000 manuscripts, thousands of these manuscripts in Greek. Once you get to that level, then you add on the fact that there's thousands of translations that are ancient, and then you have quotes, over 10,000 quotes that, uh, as uh, I don't know who did this, but the, the, the story is basically, the line out there is that you have enough quotes out there from all the church fathers, you could probably pull the whole New Testament together except for 11 verses. That's how often it's quoted in the early church history. I mean, in that case, you're looking at a multitude of information that scholars who are really bored sit around and look at all day long. I'm just kidding. And they, they just, they sit and they look through all these readings and they examine every single one and they put the big ones together and they say, well, that's just a misspelling. We can see where his eye jumped there. That's not a big deal. And they kind of call out all these little pieces and all these things from these thousands of manuscripts to end up what we call with variants. Now, I've had to work with variants. Anybody who's gone to the seminary and they learn Greek and, and try to learn Hebrew, they have to, work with, they have to work with variants. And variants are these small little things that are different from one text or group of texts to another. For example, one of the big ones that we had to work on, and this was a pretty big one, was the question of, look, look at this text and tell me, is it the, uh, it's John 1 18, and the question is, is the only begotten God, the only begotten Son, or the only begotten Son of God? So the change is between God, Son, and Son of God. That's it. Which one is right? And you go through this whole thing, looking at all these different texts and all these different arguments, and which one's the, which one's the most likely? Why would it be changed? And you go through all this gymnastics to try to claim you've got the right answer over a couple of words. It's funny, I was listening to a sermon on, on, this, on this topic, and, and he was talking about how when he was at Dallas Seminary, the, the pastor went to his professor and he said, Hey, you know, prof, man, I, I really want it. I want the hard one. Give me the worst one. You know, that says like Jesus was pulled up by angels in the book of Mark, like over here, instead of he was crucified. You know, I want the really crazy one that just messes everything up. And he says, I've given you the hardest ones in the text. We work seminary students through the toughest ones, so the easy ones are simple. And we did. We sat there and looked. What's the ending of Mark? And how does all this stuff work out? And there's these pieces in the text that you argue through, but ultimately it doesn't change the story and it doesn't change the meaning of the text. 
The story in the gospel stays the same. Jesus is born of a virgin. He resurrects. He, he lives, teaches. He dies he res, on a cross. And he resurrects from the dead. Same storyline. Teachings don't change. Even with Paul's letters, the logic doesn't switch. The idea is still the same. Maybe a word here, a word there is adjusted. Maybe a thought here, a thought there floats around a bit because we're not sure what happened to the scribe's eye. But that's pretty much where we go. And we go, where do these variants come from? Maybe that might shake you a little bit. You're like, whoa, whoa, people are trying to change the text. No, do me a favor. If we could dim the lights, you know, in the room, and don't do that. I'm just playing. Uh, if you were to sit there with a candlelight next to you, and you had your Bible open, and you had a piece of paper next to you in a dim candlelit room as a monk, and you're copying and copying and copying, and you're trying to copy, you don't think your eye's going to skip sometimes? You're not going to make some mistakes. You're not going to misspell a word. You're not going to see the same word later in the page and accidentally go, oh, and pick up. This is the kind of things that happen. They got all these crazy technical terms for it, but they help kind of pull down which are the, which are the readings are not necessarily a problem and which ones are really, really, really sticky. And they're always over like little words. Holy Spirit, Spirit, you know, only begotten God is the blood in this one, is it not? That's pretty much it. But these thousands of manuscripts help us and check so that pretty much, no matter what side you land on theologically, you land on the idea that basically we're pretty, we pretty much have what the authors put down on pen when they first put it down. The question sometimes is just which readings should we keep? And that's it. And the readings that we keep don't change, or that we get rid of, don't change the entirety of the message. In fact, it affects it very little. That's at least true for the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's a little different because the Old Testament is an old document. And unfortunately, in the 1940s, the best we could attest to was, a, was an old document from the 1100s. And, you're, and the Bible was written, I mean, the Old Testament's written years before Jesus. So you're sitting copy of copy of copy of copy of copy of copy and on and on and on much, much later. You're sitting there with an 11th century Hebrew document. You're trying to go, well, I hope we got the right ones. But they had all these rules on how they copied that we were pretty sure. And then one day, little, uh, a little Jewish boy or a Palestinian boy, we're not sure, was roaming, I'm not sure actually, he was roaming around a shepherd up in the fields. He throws a rock up into a cave trying to find one of his, one of his sheep that had gotten away. And here's a crack. He climbs up into this difficult outcropping to get to and sees this, all these pots in this room and discovers that this is what we now know as Qumran or the, and the, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are. He discovers the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, over time, cave after cave is opened up, and we find all of these old texts. These texts aren't, aren't, um, aren't old like the 11th century texts. These are from the first century. We just pulled out Isaiah from what, the way it was written and read in the time of Jesus. And when you begin to compare the copies of our old stuff to what we had then, and some of them push back even into the 300s BC, before Christ, they start looking, and the statistics that I was reading is, 95% word-for-word accuracy. The 5% difference is over changes in the cultural spellings of things, adjustments, that word went out of style, this word is what that means, um, we spelled something wrong, my pen slipped. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that is, makes it different. They were so careful and meticulous in the way that they wrote things down that they kept them very tight. Now, so that's, the, that's what's going on there. And we have now... Well, roughly 10,000 or so manuscripts for the Hebrew to examine. All right, we can go back here to our, to our study. 
Want to find out about Roman history? These guys are basing it off of maybe five to six, sometimes up to 40 or 70 texts. And they're saying, we know what the history was like. This is based off of thousands and thousands of texts to get to the accurate text. It hasn't been changed. At least, I mean, in the way that, you're, that our modern people think it has. What you discover is, yeah, there have been variants, but we pretty much have found the majority of them. We have an extremely accurate text to what the original authors likely penned. Now, what about those other ones, though? You know that story. Oh, sure, okay, so we got the good books. What about all the other poor, unfortunate books that didn't get put in? That evil Constantine. You know, Dan Brown told me this one. The, uh, the, what we have here is, this, is this, fail, this whole conspiracy for the winners to win. And they got rid of all the other documents that were out there. You know, that poor Gospel of Thomas, it didn't make it. Should be in the Bible, shouldn't it? You can go down to Barnes and Noble and buy the lost books of the Bible. This is a big, thick thing with all these extra writings in it. As you examine those extra writings, there's a couple things wrong with them. First of all, they're old. They're latecomers to the argument. The Gospel of Thomas is dated at 175 AD. 175 AD, the Gospel of Thomas comes. How many of you have read the Gospel of Thomas? Minus Chris. All right. Okay, I got Rob and Chris in the room. All right, I knew Chris had. Some of you have read the Gospel of Thomas. Some of us haven't. The Gospel of Thomas is primarily just listings of Jesus' statements, of his sayings. It doesn't have any, uh, any of his walking around, any of his actions. It doesn't really have, I don't quite know it has much miracles. But he makes just kind of statements about life. It's his teachings. Just listed. And they go, wow, this must be a really early thing. Well, it's likely they were just picking up the teachings around and then adding some. There were some additional teachings, like uh, some stuff about women having to become men when they get into heaven and stuff like this. And it's really nice teachings. And the idea is because it's not from the Christian faith. It's from a segment called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was a kind of a religious viewpoint that despised the flesh, despised reality. It was more platonic. It liked this idea of ideas and and this spiritual realm. But in order to get past the spiritual realm, you had to have the secret knowledge and all this stuff to get get up there into the heavens. And it's a long story, but inevitably... It was the birthing of this new form of religion. And the way I, the way I view it, and the way most of the scholars that I've, I've been around view it, is that these guys are just trying to take Jesus and add him into their place. Give him, it might be Christians dealing with this, trying to figure out how do I deal with this Gnostic ideas? How do I fit that with Jesus? And so there was a big argument about how Jesus fits in. Well, the early church fathers are going, that's not one of our books. That's not one of, the, there are four gospels. And that's not one of them. This, this is a latecomer. It was written 175. Jesus died in 33 AD. Think about it. Jesus died in 33 AD. Do not look at the, te- at the screen right now. We're not there yet. Jesus died in 33 AD, and this comes along 175. Imagine with me that you're poking around in your grandmother's house in Ohio, and you stumble across a text about George Washington. It's old. It's handwritten. It looks original. You pull it out. You take it to somebody that's like, yeah, this was written in 1893. You're like, this changes everything we've ever known about George Washington. How? Well, it's all of George Washington's teaching how King George was right and how he was doing this in a big conspiracy. And now this book is supposed to translate all the rest of our thinking about George Washington when it came in 1893. George Washington in 1776 
lived and wrote plenty of stuff and had plenty of his own works down and had other people talking about him, a book coming a hundred or so years later doesn't necessarily give us extra information and shouldn't necessarily be a reliable source for the conversation about who Jesus was. Well, I'm implying something. I'm implying our books are older, and I believe they are. And so when you get to these older documents, they're latecomers, and they're basically trying to work a different religious system. And so they've been rejected by the church unanimously. They've been set aside by the teachers of the church to say, no, those do not teach what the scriptures that we have traditionally held to be scriptures teach. There wasn't some conspiracy gathering around picking out which books belong. They'd already been through that in a different argument way in the past. And so the question is, why should we trust the ones in here? And I want to argue it's because they come from eyewitnesses and contemporaries of the day. That we can actually get to the, get early enough evidence that we don't have to believe that these books that we have, at least in the case of the New Testament, I'll argue the New Testament today, at least, and in the case of the New Testament, we don't have to fear that these were not, that these came later. These are actually, I believe, eyewitness and Contemporary accounts. What do I mean by eyewitness and contemporary? Literally, I don't think Mark was an eyewitness, but I think Peter, who Mark got his ideas from, was an eyewitness. I believe John was an eyewitness and Matthew was an eyewitness. And I believe Luke was a good doctor who was taking in information, as he says, in the opening of the book of Luke. You can read that for yourself. In the opening of the book of Luke, he's talking about this stuff and pulling, saying, I got all these information and people, other people have tried to write up this stuff before. And so I'm giving to you, Theophilus, my case for what has happened. And so the book of Luke and the book of Acts go together as a case of what has occurred in Christianity for this man to understand, who is likely a God-fearer, if not already a believer. And so I say, how do you get them? How do we know they're old? How do we know these documents are, are, are old enough to be near the eyewitness days? First of all, we have some documents that push our information back to the first century at least. We have a couple of papyri. Papyri is some old paper with some writing on it that we can date these. And it has the book of John on it. And this scrap comes roughly probably 30 years after the book of John originally was written. 30 to 50. I'll give the 51. We also have some other ones that date after that that are compiled already, which means there had to be a lot of work putting these together and pushes the date further and further back so that they would be at least in the first century. Now, current scholarship argues like this, at least in in the schools that I went to, argue this way. Open up first, before we do this, before I start my argument, open up to Acts chapter 29 for me. Uh, just stop. There is no Acts 29. I'm playing with you. <laughs> and that's my point. There's no Acts 29. The book of Acts works like this. Hi, Peter. Uh, Jesus ascends into heaven, sends out, to the, sends out the apostles, and they're preaching and preaching and preaching. And this dude Saul comes up on the scene, persecuting the church, and Jesus comes and knocks him off his horse, and he becomes Paul the apostle. Goes on three missionary journeys, spreading the word of God all over the place, doing great mission work, and it comes to Jerusalem and is arrested. In his arrest, everybody, Jesus is telling him, you're going to go preach to the Caesar in Rome. You're going to do all this stuff in Rome. And he's going, okay. So he's held off for two years. And finally, he gets to Rome at the end of the book after this big high seas voyage and all this stuff's going on. And he lands in Rome and the book ends and he preached to people in his house in Rome. You don't find out what happens to him in front of Caesar. You don't find out what happened to Peter, 
who has been the other person. Both, you don't hear of Paul's martyrdom. You don't even hear of Paul's likely fourth missionary journey that happened after Acts 28. You don't hear about the deteriorating problems between the Jews and the Romans to the point that Rome in 70 AD sacks and destroys the temple. None of that is in there. And so we, I have the conclusion, and many others have the conclusion, that this must have been written before those things happened. That Luke finished the end of Acts and said, and he's been teaching people there, and that's where it's at. And he sends it off to Theophilus while he's sitting with Paul in Rome. Because there's not more history to write yet. And so, the, so that at least pushes the book of Acts to at least just before 70 AD, probably in the middle of the 60s. Luke came before Acts. So that pushes Luke about a year or two earlier, at least. And Luke likely used the book of Mark when he wrote. See, the book of Mark, Mark, most people don't know who Mark is. John Mark was an associate of Paul, but he was also one who was said to have gone around with Peter. And the book of Mark is really the preaching of Peter as, as Papias um, an old dude from way back. He was supposed to be a disciple of one of the apostles. And one of the claims of Papias is that whenever he had a question, he'd just go ask the apostles because he was right there. He could just go ask them and they would approve or disapprove of whatever he was learning. And so Papias is saying, hey, look, Mark wrote down what Peter said. And that makes sense because most, most scholarship today says that Mark is where all the other gospels frame their stories around. If you look at Luke and you look at Matthew, they both kind of match up with how Mark teaches, teaches the story. And they have a tendency to agree with Mark. Well, that would make sense if Matthew, the actual apostle, is sitting there going, hey, that's Peter's writing. He's the dude in charge. I'll just follow his way of doing it. Now, if it had just been Mark, and Mark had just written down what he thought should be written down, Matthew would have gone, who are you? You're not an apostle. So it's likely that there was some reasoning that they would use Mark, and it was that it came from the pen of Peter, or not from the pen of Peter, from the mouth of Peter through Mark's pen. And Mark wrote it and disseminated it. Now that pushes the Gospels back to in the early, or early 60s, late 50s, at least the Gospel of Mark. Jesus died in 33 AD. You're at, you're at the maximum 30 years away. Anybody remember something that happened to them 30 years ago? Like maybe for over a three-year period or so that it happened, or maybe 20 years ago over a three-year period, maybe called college. Could you, could you give me enough information about what you remember about your college life? And it would be fairly accurate, let alone you probably haven't been running around telling your whole life story of college for the last 30 years orally to everybody in a room, telling them this is what we're teaching, this is what we're preaching, this is what it is. Every year since Jesus has sent them out, since Pentecost came, Peter's standing there preaching the teachings of Jesus, preaching the stories of Jesus. All the apostles are doing this. All the 500 witnesses are doing this. Everybody's talking about this. Everybody's going over this. All the contemporaries and the eyewitnesses are, are talking through this stuff. Everybody's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. 30 years go by, and the apostles are spread out. They're not together. One of them has died, and I guarantee they're going, we need to get this on paper. And so they start writing down the truths that they've been preaching, and then they get passed out and copied and disseminated from there. But what we have is eyewitnesses and contemporaries, and what's interesting is the text attests to this. 
One of, the, one of the books in your Bible is called 1 Corinthians. And this text in 1 Corinthians is interesting because Paul, nobody denies that Paul didn't, nobody says Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians. Nobody says that. Everybody says Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And what's interesting is Paul in the book, chapter 15 starts saying, this is what I was taught. And he goes through this whole creed about how Jesus was raised from the dead and all these things from Peter saw him and then all these guys and then I saw him and, five, and this is one of his things. And he, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. You hear the dare in that text? You don't believe me? 500 of them saw him. Most of them are still alive. Go find him. They'll tell you. And some people would say, oh, they live in Corinth, which is like in Greece. You couldn't get to Jerusalem to find out. Well, maybe they could have. Because at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, we know Peter had already visited Corinth with some of his associates. And Peter is one of the eyewitnesses on the chart. They could have easily asked Peter, is this stuff true? And I think what he's simply doing is, guys, you've met people who have seen this. You've met people who can telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus resurrected from the dead. What we're telling you is real. They're eyewitnesses, over 500 of them. Some of them are dead. You've met a couple of them. This is how accurate this is. Then Mark is an odd one. This is a really odd one to me. Mark 15, 21. They're talking about Jesus. He's, being, he's about to be crucified. He's carrying his cross. He's on the Via della Rosa. He can't handle it. He falls over. And then the, the centurions around these, uh, these Roman guards, soldiers, press a man into service, a passerby coming into the country named Simon of Cyrene. We know his name. We know where he's from. A random dude pulled out of a crowd, told to pick up a cross and take it. How do we know who this guy is? Well, Mark tells us. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Duh. I have no idea who Alexander and Rufus are. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> they did. Somehow the author is so confident that the people he's writing to know Alexander and Rufus. Many scholars that have, that have done t- studies on this text say this is like an ancient form of footnotes. And it happens in the, in the Bible in, in a couple of places. It's really odd. It's like saying, look, you know Alexander and Rufus. This was their dad. Go talk to them. This is where we got the story from. You ever wondered how the authors know what's going on in king's palaces that they weren't accessible to? Did God give them a vision? No, it's likely somebody, some servant who was standing there listening to that became a Christian and told everybody. And that story got put in and accompanied and built on. And when the author took that information, he put it in there as eyewitnesses and contemporaries of the life of Jesus so that what we get in the community is an accurate picture of what Jesus taught and what he did. And in fact, telling them, go talk to other people. They lived, enough, they lived close enough, and I believe that together they penned what we have today called the four Gospels and the rest of our New Testament to know the accurate picture of who Jesus was and what he did. And that it's not changed, and that's the challenge that we need to have because that means we should change. Ah, Okay. I'll grant to you. I'll give you this. I'll give you that Mark and Luke and John and those guys all wrote their gospels. But they did it because they wanted to be famous and make money and have lots of sex because they made a religion. You haven't had that one thrown at you? I've had that one thrown at me. 
Of course, what are the only three reasons you make a religion? To have lots of sex, to have lots of money, and to be really famous. Because that's what all these other cult people do. Well, okay, let's, let's deal with that one for a second. Let's start with the have lots of sex one. Uh, first of all, most of these guys were single. And they argue, don't have sex unless you're married. And if you are married and you have sex with somebody else, you're kicked out of the, you're kicked out of the, you're out of the family. I mean, they were pretty serious about that kind of a thing. In fact, we call it prudish today. And we would say that the apostles were pretty prudish. Uh, I can't necessarily say that was the reasoning for producing a religious expression. Well, maybe it was money. Except that every time you turn around, all they're doing is converting poor people. And all they're doing is helping poor people. If somebody gives them money, they give it away. The idea of, of the church being a charity was from the Bible. And they gave so much money away that Paul has to run around the entire world saying, can you give me money for Jerusalem? They're in really a lot of trouble. Not a lot of wealth there. The church really doesn't become wealthy until way after Constantine when they start really accumulating all the money to themselves a hundred or so years later. The church is poverty stricken. Okay, so maybe they did it to be famous. Have you ever known somebody who invented a god in India? If you don't know anything about Indian culture, that's not really funny. But India has over a trillion gods. It has so many gods. Who cares if you make up a god? You ain't going to get famous. It's just adding to the pantheon. Oh, another god. Add on to the fire. Making gods up in Rome is like having a new car. Whoopee. It's like the amount of cars you have in America, about how many idols and things you had in Rome. They had different names and they stored them in places. And everybody had one. Unless you were Jewish. You didn't have any idols. You didn't want idols. You worshiped the one true God at the temple. These guys didn't become famous. They became infamous. And that wasn't popular to be infamous in their time period. These guys were good little Jewish boys raised to believe that there is one true and living God and you worship at the temple and you eat only certain foods. And by the time that they were done with whatever happened in their life, they claimed that Jesus was God. You didn't need to go to the temple and you can eat whatever you need to eat with whoever you're with so that they can come to know Christ. Their entire worldview that they were trained with was flipped upside down by one event that they attest to. The life of, they're walking with the life of Christ. They weren't famous Everywhere they went, they were ridiculed. They were called blasphemers with the Jewish people. They were called foolish to the, to the Greeks. The Greeks didn't like the idea because they said, how can a God be crucified? That doesn't make any sense to shame a God. That's ridiculous. The Jewish, didn't, Jewish people didn't like it because they're going, hello, you can't have God be a man. Or there wasn't fame involved in that at all. In fact, we know that from tradition that all of them died horrible, horrible deaths. They didn't just die. They were tortured to death. Peter, crucified upside down. Andrew, crucified and having his bowels removed from him after crucified the second time. First time he was pulled down because they said, ah, let's not be so mean to him. And while on, on there, they were told, Paul is told, recant of your Christianity and we won't behead you. He couldn't recant. 
The point is simply this. Most people, some people will indeed die being deceived about something. Some people will die claiming their power and they'll commit suicide. Few people that I know of are tortured and won't confess reality. And that's what they were. They were tortured and they still didn't recant. They still didn't say, no, no, I made it all up. The motivation isn't there except to say, this is what we saw. It didn't happen in a corner. We're telling you the truth. Talk to people and you will see. And that's the picture that we have in the New Testament. A reliable text that's very accurate to the originals. Eyewitness testimonies that are written down or contemporary testimony that is written down so that we can know. So suspend your disbelief about the miracles? No, let's take a different tact. Imagine somebody comes to you today at Starbucks and starts speaking to you. And you're like, oh, this, this guy's really nice. Nicely groomed man, good conversation, really intelligent. He's got his doctorate and all this stuff. And you're just like, oh, this guy's great. And he goes, by the way, did you know I'm God? You'd be like, you crazy. You ain't God, but you crazy. And he said, no, no, I'm seriously, I'm God. What's the next words that would come out of your mouth? Prove it. How do you prove that you're God? Do a miracle. Do something that doesn't happen every day. Something that can't be explained by science. Do something that is so out of there that obviously you've got to be God. Last time I checked, Jesus said he was God. And when people said prove it, he was doing miracles. And we step back and go, it has miracles in it. I can't believe it. Maybe we should be more upset with Jesus' statements in the Bible than, his, than what we see as the supernatural. Because if someone stated to us that he was God, we would expect the supernatural to prove it. That's exactly what occurs in the text. So maybe we shouldn't read prejudice into the supernatural events at this point. But instead, read what Jesus is saying and realize, wow, if I was an eyewitness, that would change me too. If I was a little good Jewish boy who wasn't supposed to do this stuff, that would flip me over as well. Because how do I explain it? All I can do is tell people about it. And it's up to them to trust me or not. That's where we're at today. Either it's been changed which I don't think it has. And I hope that I've shown that. Or we need to change. Because you can't read the Bible and not be impacted by what it states about who Jesus is and what he has done and not need to be changed. My brothers and sisters, Christians in the room, you can stand on the word of God as strongly as you can stand on the history channel, if not stronger. You can stand on the Bible believing its accuracy and trusting what it's telling you. Allow yourself to keep being changed. Do not conform into the image of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the word of God. We'll talk about whether it really is the word of God, not just ancient documents next week. But I hope that we've been challenged. I hope that we're beginning to see that what we have is a picture of what Christ really did, and we can truly trust him. If you're not a Christian... I challenge you this week to just dive into the story of Jesus. Look at what he says. You have to wrestle with the resurrection. 
Because if Jesus resurrected, the rest of it all falls together. If Jesus is really a resurrected guy, if what these eyewitnesses are claiming really occurred, then you have to take Christianity seriously and all of its thinking. That's what I challenge. I'm not asking you to make a change today. I'm asking you to, to move and give credence to the witness's testimony and then put together the most probable scenario of how you explain the evidence. That's where I leave it this morning. I would like to pray over us and ask his blessing. Lord God, I pray that you have encouraged those in this room who have stood with the word of God, who have stood with the Bible. God, I hope that you've challenged some people here today who, who, who might not have thought through some of these arguments, who might not have dove into some of these things. And God, I ask that you'd bless them as they explore your word and as they um, press into, your, um, into the Bible and the eyewitnesses' accounts here, God, and the contemporaries' accounts. And I ask that you challenge us also as Christians to just continue to go deeper. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. And thank you that you preserved it for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.